Defense occupies a unique point in the relationship between the United States and not just the Arab world, but indeed the overseas world. The reason for this is defense relations between the United States and foreign countries are so heavily regulated that once they get going, they're very, very difficult to stop. And I challenge you, if you read any article about a troubled relationship between the United States and any foreign country with which it has a military relationship, you will always notice this sentence in it, the military-to-military -military relationship is good. And that's because of the fundamental structure. Nevertheless, in the Arab world, this has been a year of profound turmoil, and we are honored to have three guests of distinction to speak to us about it. Uh, my name is Dave DeRoche, and I'm a professor at the Near East South Asia Institute of the National Defense University. Um, I'm a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I'm proud to see that there are West Point cadets here, uh, as well as, thank you, as well as Annapolis midshipmen. Um, apparently due to the increase in ankle bracelet monitoring roaming. And uh, we have Virginia Military Institute cadets. For those of you not familiar with military or service academies, I should point out, just keep your hands away from them while they're eating and you'll be fine. We have three guests of great distinction. Starting off on my far, <laughs> starting off on my far left, Lieutenant General Jeff Kohler, retired, former director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Prior to General Kohler becoming the director of the agency, it dealt as a matter of routine with arms transfers, training packages, and security assistance meant to boost influence. Under his directorship, it morphed into a key component of the Defense Department and U.S. government strategy to build partner capacity. He transformed the agency. He is a um, command pilot in the U.S. Air Force. He has a master's in art history from the University of Indiana, a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, but also a graduate of the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, one of the famed Jedi Knights. He is currently Vice President for International Business Development at Boeing. On my right, Colonel Ron Perilou, uh, a Louisiana native and B-52 pilot with over 3,400 flight hours, one of the only men in Washington who can correctly pronounce my name. He was born in Newfoundland, Canada, graduate of Louisiana State University and spent a significant portion of his career in Minot, North Dakota. For a Louisianan, I can tell you that that is a sacrifice in the interest of national security. And then finally, Two over from me, the gentleman with the beard, Christopher Blanchard, is a Middle East uh, specialist affairs analyst at the Congressional Research Service. His written product is not readily available to the public, but rather is made available to members of Congress who then leak it to various websites which publish it. He is the man who provides neutral, dispassionate, and impeccable analysis to members of Congress. In effect, his career has been spent casting pearls before swine. He holds a bachelor in political science from Boston College and, like Bashar al-Assad and his wife Asma, is a graduate of London University. Our first speaker will be General Kohler. Thank you, David. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the opportunity. I have one little correction on my introduction. Uh, at uh, Fort Leavenworth, when you go through the Advanced School of Military Studies, there's actually two levels. Majors go through what becomes the Jedi Knight course, 
Uh, I attended the Jedi Master course. Uh, so we had all the real secrets of how that was put together. So it's okay. Now this morning, uh, Ambassador Freeman talked about the political struggles in the region, and Dave alluded to that as well. And I want to highlight that more often than not, it is the military relationship that will keep uh, the relations and the bonds between countries very strong. And looking at the, the cadets that are here, uh, two things for them. Never pass up an opportunity in your career to build a relationship with a foreign military officer. And I hope there's some budding foreign service people here too, because you never know when you're going to run into that person again. I could probably stand up here for 30 or 45 minutes and go through example after example. And actually, General Colin Powell had three or four that, that he personally got involved in by calling classmates that, that he knew from his days at Leavenworth or Carlisle and talking them into doing something that needed to be done, but they really didn't want to do it. So those relationships are strong. The other point for all the cadets is it's never too late to go Air Force. You have an opportunity. I will be available later to tell you how to do that. So as Dave said, uh, I've got a lot of experience in the U.S. government uh, doing the mill-to-mill -mill weapons sales, weapons transfers. I've been on the other side of the equation since I retired. So for seven and a half years, I've been with the Boeing company, specifically with Boeing Defense, Space, and Security. So I've seen it from both sides. So I thought today I would just give you a little taste of what I see as my personal view. It's not the company. It's not the Air Force. Uh, my own experience of what has worked well and what we need to do to improve. Weapons transfers have been important. They do work. Uh, it provides common equipment between our partners and the U.S. military. That equates into common training. When you sell somebody a big platform like an F-15, you build a 30-plus year relationship with that Air Force. When you sell them M1 tanks, you build a 30-year relationship. Uh, the Saudi Navy has operated U.S. ships in their eastern fleet. That's been a 40-year relationship. Their CNO has gone to the, to, uh, to the Naval War College up in uh, Newport. Those are the kind of things that you see with these transfers. Then that turns into exercises where you get the troops out together working together. Those things have worked brilliantly. Same time, we have high-level dialogue between joint staffs. The, their leadership comes in. We have great relationships between the senior, uh, the senior leadership of all the services. This is chief to chief. Uh, in the Middle East now, we have Air Force Central Command, Navy Central Command, Army Central Command. They build relationships on a daily basis with their counterparts, with, with the next level of leadership that's up and coming. So you continue to build on that as you go forward. That has always enabled around the world for the U.S. military a way that we can have open and very honest dialogue with our partners as we go forward. And that's a very healthy relationship. At the same time, uh, just to touch on the industry side a little bit, what we've seen um, around the world, and particularly now in the Middle East, is starting to really catch on. Uh, we have helped establish some very, very viable and 
uh, productive and profitable companies throughout the region that are owned by local nationals. In Saudi Arabia, there are several very viable companies today that started years ago as an offset project. Uh, they're now partners with us on future projects. They bid on our campaigns around the world and are part of our global supply base. Uh, there's a partner in the UAE that, that has, it will now soon be building key parts for our commercial airplanes. So those kind of relationships, starting with mill to mill, starting with the weapons transfers, often go in different directions. Now there's some things that aren't working very well. Uh, I started out with weapons transfers is one of the things that is working well. It's also one of the things that's not working well. Um, David alluded to that. We have too many things that are hung up in our process, uh, too many processes to go through with State Department, the Hill, and I understand that everybody gets a vote, particularly Congress. Uh, I worked that for many, many years, and it is very, very important. But our process is taking way too long. And the other thing we're not good at is providing definitive answers to our friends and partners. We're not able to tell them how long it's going to take. We're not able to tell them when we'll actually be able to put something on the table. There are too many unknowns. Uh, and too often we, we seem to want to backtrack on technology release. Uh, there's one country in particular that we gave some equipment two years ago, and then when they asked for some more equipment, we said, well, you could have it, but not at the same technology level. We'll have to come down a little bit. I mean, I took that. I assume they did too, it's a huge insult. How do you go back to somebody and say, it was okay 10 years ago, but now, eh, I don't think I want to give you the same level of technology. That sends a really, really bad message to people that we call our best partner in the region. So we have to improve on that. Now that takes the Congress, it takes the administration, it takes industry, it takes a lot of us on this side to resolve some of those issues. Language issues still remain a problem, particularly with our enlisted force on both sides. When they come here to the United States for training on a new weapon system, uh, they're often unprepared. Uh, so we have to help develop those skills early on the other side of the equation, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Asia, it doesn't really matter. But we can't take the time to, to keep sending people back through English language training. And there's actually a military language training course that they go through as well to learn some of the military lingo that's often in the tech manuals and so forth. It's one thing to train the pilot or the infantry officer or the, the armor officer, but if you can't train the enlisted force to maintain the equipment, uh, to follow the leadership of those officers, then you run into problems. Uh, visas, visas are still an issue. Uh, I think it's getting better, but years ago um, we had a lot of problems. Uh, I was hosting one group or getting ready to host one group uh, down in Atlanta and uh, unfortunately it was shortly after 9-11 and the, the hotel wasn't sure who they were so they called Homeland Security that showed up in the middle of the night. And it, it took a little while to unscrew that one, but, but we have to do better to allow our partners to come over have these meetings, uh, have a dialogue, and take care of them while they're here. Now, I, I made a note, and then I noticed that the next panel is going to really dive into this, but one of the things I put down that is not working well is 
better cooperation amongst the GCC. Uh, one area that we've been trying to work on for years is missile warning and missile defense. And if now is not the time to get that done, I don't know when it is. So I hope the next panel will address some of that a little bit more. I won't go into it any more detailed right now. So a couple of thoughts of where we go. Obviously, I think we need to continue to strengthen those elements that are working well, and we have to work on those that aren't. Fairly obvious statement. But let me offer two things in closing of why I think this is really important. The first is the U.S. is going to continue to rebalance to the Pacific. Doesn't mean we're pulling out of the Middle East. Doesn't mean we're pulling out of NATO. But let's face it, as our budgets are continued to, to be constrained, the silliness up on the Hill with continuing resolutions and the inability to pass a clear budget, I can say that now that I'm retired, but until we solve some of those things, our military is going to be under a lot of pressure. We can't be everywhere at once. So as we rebalance, there is going to be an impact in the Middle East. But His Highness mentioned it, and I'll call it the new big elephant in the room, and that's Russia. So we have dealt with Russia for years in a NATO context. Uh, I've dealt with them in Asia. But dealing with them with direct military force on the ground in the Middle East is something new. And I think all of us, our partners in the Middle East, the United States, I think we all need to wake up very quickly and figure out how to deal with this issue. Uh, they're going to deploy S-300s into Iran. Uh, that is a very, very sophisticated missile. Uh, will cause problems. Given their aggression against NATO and other countries, what I think they will do in the Middle East is very worrisome to me. Uh, my friends in Japan uh, told me that last year they came literally within about five or six intercepts of their Cold War record of scrambling against Russian incursions into their airspace. So if they're doing that in Japan and they're doing it in NATO, I'm concerned about an incident in the Middle East. There's too much going on in the region over Iraq, over Syria. We have allies flying missions uh, against uh, ISIL and other things. So we have to get this resolved, and I hope that brings the military leadership much closer together for that dialogue that I think is, is just so important. So that may take a little bit longer, but I hope we're dealing with it. So with that, I'll conclude. David, thank you, and I look forward to questions from the audience. Thank you, General Cullen. General Kohler and I worked extensively in the Pentagon. This is the first time I've seen him in eight years. And I said, uh, good morning, General. He said, Dave, I'm not in the Pentagon anymore, neither are you. You don't have to call me General, just call me Sir. And uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce another colleague from the Pentagon, Colonel Ron Perilou. Thanks, Dave. Um, uh, Dr. Anthony, thank you for, uh, for the invitation to speak here today. Um, First off, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, I look around the room, there are a lot of folks here who are uh, incredibly qualified to, to be up here. Some of you who've had uh, many more years experience than I've been alive in the Middle East. So please bear with me. Some of the things I say you may have heard before, you may disagree with, but uh, I'll leave plenty of time for uh, questions at the end. Uh, this is not a speech. It's a, uh, a few points that I think are really good for uh, uh, developing uh, the conversation. Uh, call it food for thought. 
Um, disclaimer, I work for Lockheed Martin. I spent 26 years in the U.S. Air Force. This is not the opinion of Lockheed Martin. This is not the opinion of the United States government. This is the opinion of uh, one person who loves his country dearly and who also has a, a deep and abiding affection for uh, the people I met in the Middle East over, uh, over the last 30 years. Um, we're talking about security cooperation, defense cooperation, and, and uh, General Kohler uh, covered most of the salient points uh, uh, that, uh, that I was going to cover. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, but I think uh, the one thing that, uh, that you have to, to understand about security cooperation actually comes from a DOD directive. As it turns out, there's a directive for everything in the Department of Defense. Uh, but from DOD Directive 5132.03, <coughs> it is DOD policy that security cooperation is an important tool of national security and foreign policy and is an integral element of the DOD mission. What it doesn't state there is that uh, security cooperation is the purview of the Department of State uh, as, uh, as executed by the Secretary of State through the President of the United States. And so everything that happens, everything that DOD does is at the uh, behest of the President and uh, executed uh, through, or they execute it as part of, uh, or in support of the Department of State mission. Um, probably the biggest you know, I'll, I'll cover maybe some of the uh, some of the things we've done right, some of the things we've done wrong uh, over the years, but but probably the biggest challenge we see uh, with uh, defense cooperation in the Middle East is a uh, uh, is public perception of uh, of the Middle East, and, and it's almost always skewed by media reports. It's uh, mostly uh, you know patently false. Maybe it's not uh, on purpose, but uh, but uh, we do get a different uh, a different view than uh, than what I think people who travel to the region get. Uh, significant distrust uh, of uh, Arab governments in Congress. Um, they have incomplete uh, information. Uh, they have differences of opinion, and they have uh, they have outright hostile media reports. Uh, but they don't go over and see uh, what's going on um, firsthand. So we spend a lot of time saying to, poke, saying to folks, hey, we have to continue to do these things, and we have to come up with a reason why. We have to have a reasoned argument why. Um, and I think if you look at U.S. military history over the last dec or the last uh, century, you can come up with some really good reasons uh, for, uh, for doing this. Number one um, is clearly common interests, right? We, uh, we have a, a, a great interest in uh, regional stability, stability of the world energy supply, Counterterrorism. We've got common enemies: uh, the Islamic State, Al Qaeda, um, Iranian influence and meddling in their neighbors' affairs. Uh, most of all, though, uh, it's the positive effect that uh, defense cooperation has uh, on a uh, uh, on a set of partners. You know, education, understanding, uh, the building of trade, uh, capacity building in our partners, and and the bottom line is we learn to trust each other and work together, and that's the, that promotes peace and stability. So we'll continue to engage. Uh, over, you know, over the last uh, we'll, we'll call it 30 years since I entered government service. Um, we've seen some pretty incredible uh, successes in our relationships in the Middle East and the Arab world. 
uh, but over the last uh, five years, it's it's increased at a at a, uh, a pretty amazing rate. We've seen the standoff weapons deal with uh, the GCC countries. We've seen the release of advanced fighter technology to the U.S. or to the uh, UAE and to Saudi Arabia. We've seen the president announce that the U.S. would support um, uh, expedited release of uh, integrated air and missile defense technology to countries in the region. Uh, we've seen a removal of the hold on uh, FMF funding to Egypt that the general mentioned, which uh, just as, a, as an aside, it took us 30 years to pry Egypt away from, uh, from uh, Soviet influence, and now we risk um, uh, letting it go back to Russia if we're not, uh, if we're not careful. Um, you know, the, the, the president made, uh, made some significant commitments at, at Camp David. Um, we're committed to the security of our, of our partners. Um, we won't abandon the region, and we'll examine ways to expedite uh, decisions on the re release of technology and systems. Um, and most importantly, uh, we've seen, and this is not on our side, this is on the, the, the side of, of Arab nations, uh, when you look at the last 25 years and who has stood next to the United States most often and most diligently, uh, it's been our partners in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE. They've been there for every every conflict uh, we have uh, uh, engaged in, and they've been better partners to us than some of our NATO allies. And so I think that is a, uh, that is a win for the relationship. However, there's always a however, we've got significant dissatisfaction on the part of our partners based on what, uh, what they see as a failure to properly uh, recognize that willingness. Um, one thing that didn't come out of uh, Camp David was a, a formal defense, a mutual defense agreement with uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. They, that's something they wanted, and we, we did not uh, uh, sign such a deal. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal, everybody likes to talk about uh, uh, the deal itself, but it's not, it's not the nuclear deal, I think, that, uh, that uh, aggravates folks in the region. It's that it's seen as an enabler to give Iran the resources it needs to continue to meddle in its neighbor's affairs. Um, continued issues with QME laws. I think you know that's that's a bit of a moot point. It's the law, um, but we uh, we committed to an expedited release uh, decision process, which I think was heard perhaps across the world as a an expedited yes, not an expedited decision yes or no. Um, the general talked about the FMS process, uh, the continued perception that we're not fully committed because of the pivot. And then, and then one thing that uh, I think is um, a, a significant uh, uh, irritant is the application of human rights laws in an inconsistent manner with, uh, with other countries. And so we treat, we tend to treat the, our Middle East partners to, or hold them to a different standard than we do to countries like China, uh, with, which I think probably has uh, a, a, as bad or worse um, uh, record. So where do we go from here? You know, I think it's, it's very clear. Um, we, we continue to engage. We do everything we can to, to uh, demonstrate a commitment to the relationship. We nurture our relationships with, with countries that have stood by us for 20 years. We have to take a balanced approach to advanced technology release. We cannot paint every country in the region with the same brush. Um, and most importantly, we need to understand that military cooperation is probably our most uh, effective tool in, uh, uh, in achieving our goals in the region. Uh, it's uh, effective in ensuring stability, it influences change, and it's uh, our uh, uh, most important diplomatic tool in the region. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Colonel Perilou. And um, the first man I worked for in the Pentagon was a, uh, a three-term, three-tour veteran of Vietnam in the infantry who was working on a doctorate in English Renaissance poetry. And he told me the secret to good government writing is plagiarism. <laughs> if you wish to follow that advice, our next speaker is the man you should plagiarize from. It's my pleasure to give you Christopher Blanchard. Good afternoon. Uh, I was going to get up here and say something about always disassociating myself from most of what David has to say, but <laughs> with that last, uh, particularly about members of Congress, um, but, uh, um, but with that last one, I'll, I'll wholeheartedly endorse that. That is what uh, we here at CRS are for. Um, we serve, obviously, the elected representatives, but increasingly uh, a wider public. Um, I'd like to thank the National Council for again having me back. Um, uh, normally I'm in David's role, uh, sort of managing this, this panel, um, and so I'll keep it brief because I know how uh, it can be with time here. Uh, I'm participating as well in my personal capacity, uh, and the views I'll share with you are, are mine alone and not those of the Library of Congress or the Congressional Research Service. Um, so why are we here? Uh, we're here again uh, uh, concerned with, with defense cooperation because of the tumultuous change uh, in the region's security uh, that continues to unfold. Um, and we all share a deep concern, obviously, uh, for the people of the region uh, 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 and its future. Um, in Washington, uh, obviously, uh, policymakers continue to very vigorously debate which strategies are most appropriate for adapting U.S. policy uh, to the demands of the region's uh, continuing unrest and shifting politics. Uh, basic U.S. regional security commitments, as we've heard, uh, are unchanged, uh, and this administration uh, and many in Congress have repeatedly restated them. Uh, I would uh, argue that uh, the statement released at the GCC summit um, is perhaps the clearest uh, and most um, forward-leaning statement of the U.S. security commitment uh, since President Carter's. Uh, so um, I think it's worth paying attention to the extent to which folks here in Washington have sought to um, uh, portray a message of, of continuity. Uh, and what they've coupled that with, however, um, is, is a message that we seek to emphasize uh, uh, and put a priority on partnership, um, uh, a partnership approach um, while redefining some security relationships with key countries in the region. Uh, in the region, however, uh, as policymakers have, have struggled to, to meet the challenges of unrest, also managing uh, a message from Washington uh, of consistency coupled with, uh, with evolution uh, has proven difficult. Uh, and in this context, um, some in the region and indeed some in the audience uh, have questioned U.S. decision-making. Uh, we've seen regional institutions such as the Arab League and the GCC revive discussion of regional collective defense initiatives. Uh, and some U.S. security partners, uh, among the closest in the region, uh, have also taken newly assertive and independent action uh, through ad hoc coalitions of their own. Although that, the landscape in the region has undoubtedly changed, relatively few in Washington or in the region uh, are arguing for uh, a wholesale change or a rupture. On the contrary, rather we see a continuing and at times acrimonious debate uh, over new rules, new roles, and new responsibilities uh, with both the United States and its partners in the region adopting a trial and error approach, uh, trying different options uh, to, to see which best suits the, the evolving conditions. So the main observation I'd like to share with you today uh, is a relatively simple one, uh, and it's the following. Both the partnership approach uh, currently favored uh, by U.S. decision makers 
and the active, yet US-enabled, active self-defense approach uh, favored by some Arab decision makers increases the importance uh, of factors that have been relatively elusive uh, in U.S.-Arab relations and defense cooperation to date. Um, uh, as uh, General Kohler des described, we have a long history uh, in developing common equipment, uh, partnerships, common training, um, and what is slightly more elusive, however, is a sense of a common purpose. Um, so uh, the first factor I'd like to highlight is, is, is dialogue. Dialogue in pursuit of a mutual interest, a truly mutual interest. One uh, that's greater than a least common denominator approach uh, or the laundry list that we often tick off and have ticked off for decades. Um, but one that really uh, seeks to calculate something that's greater than, than simply, uh, as I said, a least con common denominator approach to parallel uh, interests. Um, and what that needs to be built on is a second factor, uh, transparency and clear communication. If the path forward is indeed one of partnership, and many of you are here in business, and um, you'll have no closer relationships than you have uh, uh, those with, with your partners, your business partners. Um, that, that word uh, means uh, a partner is someone who you're clear with, uh, who uh, you, you share uh, your intentions, your actions, uh, accurately describing your actions, and also you're honest about constraints and red lines. Um, that dialogue, uh, while it occurs at the senior levels and obviously occurs in the military to military channels, I think increasingly if this uh, is to be a true partnership needs to uh, occur uh, on a broader basis uh, and include folks uh, uh, in our respective publics in a way that frankly hasn't necessarily been uh, managed well in the past. Um, and the third factor is, is, is true coordination from uh, the strategic planning level to the development of capabilities that uh, can enable common strategy and, and indeed to uh, uh, the actual employment of, of arms uh, in, in operations. Uh, if we are going to see uh, active U.S. partners uh, in the region among our, uh, among our Arab allies, um, that does create new expectations, uh, new conversations, and, and new challenges to overcome. Um, but but uh, uh, I think um, you know if either the U.S. or its regional partners sought to uh, take on these challenges in the region alone, uh, or ignore certain regional security set threats, they could ignore these factors that, that I've described. Um, but they all might arguably also have less success. Um, the truth remains that the U.S. and leading Arab states in the region have chosen the path of partnership and signaled and acted on their intentions to deepen it. Um, so for the U.S. decision makers, the, the, the key questions center around um, while they seek to build capable partners and not simply proxies, um, they grapple with questions raised by the fact that some of our partners' priorities will differ and some of our partners' actions may present new challenges or, or, or risks. Uh, we see this uh, uh, currently with regard to the, the uh, Syria training program. Uh, the President has been very clear uh, about the fact that uh, a misalignment, frankly, of uh, priorities uh, uh, among the United States and, uh, and its potential Syrian partners led to the failure of that program, in, in his words. Um, in Yemen, we see the United States providing logistical and intelligence support to a coalition, um, but also we see the White House and some in Congress expressing uh, some concern about uh, the course of the conflict and the need to move toward uh, the political solution that all sides have uh, uh, iterated that they want. To the extent that those in the region wish to continue to perpetuate the benefits of U.S. defense cooperation, uh, they have to grapple with questions raised by the U.S.'s new definition of its role. Um, uh, the United States has clearly articulated that it doesn't seek to serve as the, the police uh, or the governor. Uh, recently, you know, President Obama said this over the weekend. Um, but 
that they seek to serve as uh, committed enablers of their partner's self-defense, but consistent with U.S. laws and standards that are applied not just with respect to the region, but are, in fact, around the world. And again, we see this uh, in cases uh, most clearly, I think, in Yemen, but also uh, we've seen it this year with the discussion of uh, the release of holds that were placed on weapon sales to Egypt and Bahrain. Um, the, the outcome of those policy decisions reflects an evolution uh, in that policy, uh, in that relationship, um, not an abrupt uh, rupture or change. Um, and I think it represents, uh, at least from the U.S. side, a clear articulation of what uh, the standards will be um, um, uh, going forward uh, as those relationships move into the future. Um, Again, uh, just, just to close up and, and reiterate here, I, I think that uh, if the United States and its regional security partners are to successfully transform their defense relationships uh, in ways that more fully enable Arab partners to act uh, against emerging threats, then decision makers uh, on all sides must recommit to uh, serious dialogue in pursuit of mutual interest, transparent communication, um, uh, and increased coordination at, at all levels. Uh, um, while U.S. and Arab leaders all have domestic responsibilities and, uh, and rightly pursue uh, their own distinct interests, the complexity of the regional security uh, environment uh, requires, I think, uh, that type of recommitment. Uh, uh, um, decision makers on all sides, uh, if they fail to make that commitment, may face unmet expectations, unpleasant surprises, and unanticipated risks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our panel. Thank you for the brevity. Uh, first question goes to General Kohler. How do we balance partners' wants, needs, desires with U.S. national interests of human rights, opportunities for self-governance? That was like one of those ambush questions I used to get. Um, <laughs> it is a difficult uh, issue, and uh, it's Ron and Chris pointed out, uh, you know, the Department of Defense sort of decides what technology is, uh, is releasable. It's the State Department and, the, and others that really decide who gets it and, and when it's delivered. It's always a difficult question, but to me it gets back to um, training and partnership. Uh, I made the case I don't know how many times that a nation would come to us and say I would like A, a or B. If we don't sell it to them, they'll go find it somewhere else. It's always available somewhere else in the world. As I said, if you, if you sell a major piece of equipment or even a minor piece of equipment, you often develop a long-term relationship. That allows you to to open doors, and it allows you to start bringing people into your your schools, your military education schools, your enlisted training schools. And I can't think of a better place to build that sort of capacity in a partner and have discussions about human rights, have discussions about the rule of law, have discussions about the, the, the law of war and how things are governed, to have a discussion about how a leader or commander resolves some of those issues uh, when those conflicts arise. It, it, there's no pat answer to that one. But if you think about it, um, and I won't mention the country, but there was a country in South America that had been uh, heavily sanctioned uh, by us and by the UN on some of their human rights records. 
And it reminded me of a young child where you said, you go sit in the corner and when you self-correct yourself and you realize what you've done, then you can come back to the world community. Because what often happens is when our Congress comes in and says we're shutting off military aid, they also shut off all the military training that goes with it called uh, IMET, International Military Education and Training. I would go to the Secretary of Defense and others and say, instead of doing that, you ought to double it, triple it, quadruple it. The, you need to bring that leadership into the United States for that discussion. Now, maybe selling the military equipment, obviously, put that on hold. But why cut off the opportunity to build a relationship, to educate, to teach somebody how it's done in an open democracy? If you don't do that, then they'll go buy the equipment from the Chinese or from the Russians or from the French. And they'll get what they need, but they won't have the other pieces that go with it. Okay, next question is, thank you, General. Next, By the way, I, we have more questions now than we will be able to answer if we keep going for three days. So. You know, if it makes you feel good, write the questions, please write it. But I'm shuffling through them as fast as I can. Next question for uh, Colonel Paraloo. How can special operations forces be better employed in the region to embrace Arab-U.S. defense cooperation, providing boots on the ground support with very little operational signature? Well, the short answer is it's already going on. I mean, uh, in the areas where we have ongoing combat operations, uh, uh, special operations forces are, are an integral part of that. Uh, in the countries where we are, uh, or, or with whom we're partnered, uh, special operations forces are either there as part of Title 20, Title 22 uh, train and assist forces, or they could be uh, working as part of uh, a Title 10 force that's in doing uh, engagement and joint exercises. And so, if you're if you're talking about countries with whom we're partnered. Uh, it's going on as part of an assistance and engagement mission. If you're talking about places where we have uh, troops on the ground, the Special Operations Forces are already there. Thank you. And I'd, I'd just like to add that there's a common misconception in the question that Special Operations Forces have low boots on the ground. That's only true for a training mission in a relatively secure environment. But if they actually do what the threat of the question was about, actual fighting, they have a huge support requirement and footprint. And the biggest company, TO&E company in the U.S. Army, is a Special Forces Group support company. For Mr. Blanchard, how do you assess... Gulf Cooperation Council combat capacity, and how well is USGCC force integration progressing? Um, well, uh, obviously, as, as someone uh, removed from from Pentagon perspective on that, um, I, I won't comment in detail. Uh, I think, frankly, uh, my impression is that uh, the GCC operations in Yemen have proven to be uh, more robust than many expected they might be. Um, they've shown uh, a capacity to uh, obviously uh, reduce the ability of their adversary to, to remain in the field. Um, that's come um, with, uh, with a certain degree of cost. Uh, and I think what we see now are debates of uh, both um, uh, within the individual coalition members uh, and between, uh, uh, between those coalition partners uh, and U.S. partners about uh, how, to manage, uh, uh, how to manage those costs uh, and how to shift uh, the focus uh, of the military operation toward uh, a conclusion uh, rather than a continuation. Um, so, okay, yeah. sir, it's, it's it's your counsel. Just to um, 
add to that, uh, the U.S. has four defense cooperation agreements, one with Kuwait, one with Bahrain, one with Qatar, one with the United Arab Emirates. And a component of each of the uh, four is uh, training and also exercises, bilateral and multilateral exercises and, and continuous sharing of information and to the extent allowable also intelligence. And in those dialogues and the dynamics of them, there is a commonality or consensus that emerges implicitly, if not explicitly, as point one. Point two is that even older than that is the uh, access to facilities agreement with Oman, uh, which has served as an example of how far and how fast one can go in a relationship on a sensitive issue such as defense and intelligence sharing and by implication also security co cooperation. Thirdly, <clears throat> while in the early years of the GCC there were multilateral exercises, first one was in the United Arab Emirates, that was, there were two smaller ones in Kuwait and Oman, and then they stopped for the remainder of the Iran-Iraq war and most of the exercises since then have been bilateral, sometimes trilateral, the United States and Bahrain, the United States and the Emirates, United States and Oman, United States, Saudi Arabia, etc. Uh, but last August a year ago, 130,000 people were mobilized in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this was the largest uh, mobilization and deployment in the history of the GCC countries. It was in Saudi Arabia, the one country that borders all the other five there, but there were observers and um, uh, analysts and assessors from all five of the GCC countries, and there is a military um, assistant secretary general in the GCC secretariat. And every autumn, all of the uh, ministers of defense meet and every autumn all of the uh, Armed Forces Chiefs of Staff meet. And it is in these exchanges of information analysis and assessment that uh, a creeping, not a galloping, sense of oneness um, on uh, defense issues uh, is occurring. And not at the rate that external observers would prefer, but um, it's occurring nonetheless. They're not idling at the intersection. Okay, uh, for all the panelists, brief answers, please. What is one thing you would change about U.S. strategy and engagement in the Middle East? We'll start with Colonel Perilou. Wow. Um, yeah, tough. Who asked that? Um, stand, I, stand up and be ridiculed. I would, uh, I don't know that it's a, a policy change, but I would like to see a, uh, a formal statement uh, uh, from uh, the White House recognizing uh, the, the commitment and the uh, um, uh, the contribution of our partners in the region uh, for the last 25 years of, uh, uh, of conflagrations around the world. I mean, they've been with us uh, from day one. Okay. Dr. Anthony? No, I second Pass. that. Okay. Um, we obviously don't make policy recommendations, but uh, you know, the, the tone of, of what I had to say during my remarks is such that I think um, the U.S. needs to more fully embrace the implications of its chosen approach, particularly in the Middle East. Um, one uh, an approach of partnership um, doesn't uh, rid you of trade-offs. You know, uh, we've talked a lot over the last 10 years, 15 years about, well, the U.S. can go big uh, or it can stay home, and both of those seem problematic. Uh, so this middle approach of partnering um, 
uh, with regional uh, governments um, seems to, to be the way forward. However, it raises a whole other host uh, of questions. Uh, um, I think uh, at, at their root, they're really about how do you define common purpose? How do you define uh, common objectives, common uh, interests, and common standards? Um, because uh, it, the way forward, it, it, it's not um, it's not going to be easy, right? If if the U.S. is no longer going to play uh, as direct of a role, that means its partners in the region are. Uh, and again, we have to be um, more honest and, and, and candid uh, about what that uh, may mean. General Kohler, um, I'll offer one. Uh, which may be one of the hardest to do given the prerogative of Congress, but the last three administrations have, have told our friends in the Middle East that they will speed up uh, weapons release and capability. Uh, it's time to make some changes in our process to do that. Excellent. I will abuse the prerogative of the chair and say I would reverse the disestablishment of U.S. information services. Uh, that capacity cost us peanuts, uh, and not having it has been disastrous. I've never been I've never spoken to a person above the age of 30, uh, anywhere from Lahore all the way to the Italian border, who hasn't said that was a horrendous mistake. Next question is for General Kohler. How does the military balance its role as a critical input in U.S. foreign policy with its mandate to remain removed from acting in a political capacity? Um, and that is not that difficult in the environment that, uh, that I worked in. Um, we have a great interagency team uh, from State Department, Commerce, uh, DOD, and, and others that are involved in the in the policy decision. Uh, working to again the Defense Department technology release decision, as well as the State Department policy release, uh, it wasn't that hard to, to work within that. Uh, but it is a, a difficult balance sometimes uh, with within the administration. Um, we used to have a saying, there's never a good time to notify Congress. Uh, that still seems to be true these days, but um, I never found it that much of a challenge working with colleagues from, uh, from the various departments uh, to arrive at, at a very reasonable solution that, that uh, supported our friends and allies and still maintained a, a balance through uh, across U.S. policy. It's not just one region. It sometimes covers a lot of different areas. Thank you, General. For Mr. Blanchard, what role do you foresee for Turkey in cooperating with the U.S. and Arab states in regional stability, specifically in Syria? Has their role changed with the Russian involvement? Well, Syria's decision to grant uh, access to the intra Air Base has obviously transformed the capacity of uh, the coalition and the U.S. specifically uh, for operations in Syria. Um, I won't speculate uh, about uh, how Turkey may ultimately respond to an increasingly uh, assertive standpoint uh, or uh, uh, posture from the Russians, um, but what I will say is that uh, it's clear just from uh, the developments over the weekend uh, that the shift in the U.S. approach of engagement with uh, Syrian opposition groups uh, towards equipping certain vetted units uh, involved in the fight against the Islamic State uh, in northeastern Syria uh, carries with it, uh, I think, the, uh, the implication uh, of uh, Turkish security interests uh, regarding the Kurds, and specifically the YPG. Um, that's, in fact, uh, a perfect example 
uh, of, I think, some of the integrated trade-offs between partner interests, U.S. interests, and priorities. These are, this is exactly the type of issue that I think we have to uh, more directly take on, more candidly discuss, um, uh, because if we are really going to be working in, in a partnership role, um, uh, these things can't be surprises, uh, and they can't be uh, kept quiet. Thank you. Colonel Perilou, drawing on your time as the attaché in Riyadh, how can the U.S. help in facilitating the sharing of information between Iran and Saudi Arabia in their joint interest of defeating Daesh or Faesh, as our lunch speaker put it? Absolutely. I, you know, the, the real issue there is uh, that the U.S. doesn't currently have a dialogue with, uh, with Iran. So, so when we talk about trying to facilitate uh, a dialogue between Saudi Arabia and Iran, we are, uh, we're, we're a bit at a loss. We're relying on other, uh, uh, on other uh, organizations, other states. So uh, at this point, I think we're, I think we're uh, uh, completely reliant on other people. Thank you. And uh, for General Kohler, how can we expect Russia, building on this last question, how can we expect Russia to capitalize upon the chaos of the Middle East? How will the U.S. be affected? What mechanisms would increased defense cooperation contribute to our ability to anticipate and respond to such an impending event? It's a nice dissertation subject. I don't know about a short <laughs> answer. But. I was going to give it to you in the lightning round, but I decided to be merciful. Um, very complicated. I think uh, uh, Mr. Putin is, is using this to, again, uh, probably strengthen himself back home. Uh, I don't believe the Russian economy is as bad as a lot of people believe. Uh, he, he tends to support the people that support him and doesn't really care about the rest. So uh, he's, he's probably a little stronger than some people believe. Uh, but uh, their presence, particularly with the forces they have on the land and now in the air, I, I think incredibly complicate the situation. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm concerned we're, uh, we're one incident away from, from, uh, from almost the really bad days of the Cold War. Uh, in, in the Middle East uh, with them flying and, and operating on the ground. Uh, so I, I'm not really sure where that's going to lead. I think uh, it deserves a lot of attention by the leaders of the region and the United States as well as many others around the world uh, to persuade him to uh, pull back because it, it has not helped and all it has done is complicate an already difficult situation. Excellent. Mr. Blanchard, how can the United States augment its maritime presence in the Gulf as its military budget shrinks and visits by naval assets to the area decrease? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a naval officer or a naval expert, so uh, I, I can't really... Uh, it's easier than you think to pretend <laughs> to be one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, <laughs> oh, they've all left. <laughs> Well, I think it's on the purpose, right? So um, if we can't have um, full carrier battle groups uh, consistently in the region because of budget concerns, uh, are, there other, uh, are there other capabilities that we can deploy in service of some of the uh, items that General Kohler has, has listed as, as being the benefits of defense cooperation, uh, continued training, um, um, you know, uh, continued uh, uh, engagement between officers, you know, things like, obviously, uh, keeping waterways cl uh, clear, uh, mine sweeping, um, you know, uh, maritime border security uh, has become uh, increasingly important. Uh, we've seen some of our Gulf partners engage in, um, you know, maritime security uh, operations uh, in and around Yemen uh, that I think 
you know, a, a lighter U.S. Uh, footprint or a lighter U.S. approach can still uh, provide some support to that uh, without necess necessitating the sort of um, massive and consistent forward deployments that may, uh, however temporarily uh, or potentially temporarily, uh, be less possible. Better than the CNO could have done. Colonel Perilou, how might the United States help GCC countries overcome the limited effectiveness of their inadequate military coordination and interoperability? I wouldn't go so far as to call it inadequate. I think it's um, it's certainly not up to the standard that the U.S. is used to, and I think, uh, but we are working on that. I think we've got numerous. Just my company alone has numerous uh, uh, efforts throughout the region to uh, to tie together uh, command and control um, systems between the states. But um, you know, as we look at as we look at uh, United States Central Command, they have started to uh, pull together uh, partners in the region, bringing them into their uh, into their command and control systems, bringing them on at the uh, uh, you know at a proper classification level, and allowing them to to serve or allowing the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, systems to serve as uh, uh, coordinating. Um, uh, functions. Uh, the other part of that is that uh, you know the end the the end goal is to help them build their own systems, such as the Combined Air Operations Center that we're we're working with uh, uh, the Saudi Arabians in uh, in uh, uh, Riyadh, or um, you know helping them modernize the uh, the Peninsula Shield system, and so um, so so that's actually in work. I mean these are things that are that are ongoing. It's not it's not that the systems aren't there, they're or that they're inadequate. It's just they they haven't been maintained and they have to be brought up to, uh, to modern standard. Excellent. General Kohler, how would the Arab movement to self-sufficiency with regards to producing its own weapons impact the U.S. economy and how does the selling of U.S. weapons impact Arab nations' economies? Um, well, as I said, if you look at some of the examples of where we've taken uh, offset projects in the Kingdom or in uh, the Emirates uh, and turn them into very viable, uh, self-sustaining industries. I think they're a success story. Uh, I don't think they've impacted U.S. industry that much. Uh, I know from my company's perspective, especially on the commercial side, we we depend greatly on the global supply chain. Uh, you cannot do everything out of the United States anymore. It's just impossible. Uh, so. Opening up that world economy and helping support uh, uh, the vision of the leaders, whether it's uh, jobs uh, in the kingdom, whether it's technology in one of the other countries, um, it, it, it is a challenge sometimes to, to what we do and how we do it in our industrial base. Uh, but I think overall it has strengthened us, and again, it, it brings brings the nations closer together, it brings companies closer together, and it's just another one of those bonds between the military sometimes that, that helps enable uh, cooperation and, and partnership. So I, I don't think any of the major defense industries would say it's a challenge to, to what they're doing. Excellent. Please. Um, on the U.S. benefit side, um, there are the following, and we've had this since the late uh, 70s with the uh, purchases of the F-15s and then the 1981, the uh, AWACS, and then additional F-15s and um, beyond. The um, benefits uh, in numerous cases have been to extend production runs of uh, factories manufacturing of armaments that would have otherwise shut down. 
and that's had a direct positive impact on the labor force in uh, wherever that was, Fort Worth with uh, General Dynamics at the time, or uh, Boeing or uh, McDonnell Douglas in earlier day, days, Northrop Grumman and uh, Raytheon and, and the like. Uh, secondly, uh, because of the size of these purchases, um, it has lowered the per unit cost. Uh, when there are larger numbers of a product uh, being bought, um, the uh, producer can afford to uh, lower the per unit cost and still find it quite profitable. The five companies I just named, and I, I think I left out Lockheed Martin, these are giants. These are not just Fortune 100 companies. Maybe they're Fortune 20 uh, countries in terms of their profitability and what they contribute to the U.S. Uh, uh, revenue flow. Hey, David, let me, let me ask yes, that. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that those foreign sales have actually kept uh, specific lines open in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll cite two, uh, tow missiles and harpoon missiles for the Navy. On the tow missile for the U.S. Army, if it had not been for foreign sales, that line would have closed years ago. and. Uh, when we were in Iraq, uh, there was a high demand for, for toes, and had it not been for the international sales, there wouldn't have been it. Yep. And for the Navy, uh, our international partners actually have a more advanced version than they do, and now the Navy's realized that they need to upgrade. So for years, it's kept that capability alive for not only our friends, but the U.S. Exactly, General. Oh, I don't know if you've heard that bell, but we've just gone into the lightning round. And in the lightning round, uh, the answers to the questions are five sentences or less. Say the magic word, duck gives you $50. Mr. Blanchard, how can the United States facilitate the acquisition by Iraq and Yemen of armed drones for use in their battlefields against violent extremists, or should they? Um, well, not to comment on those specific cases, uh, but the uh, concerns about uh, expediting, um, uh, again, I think fold into uh, w what I would put forward as a, the need for a broader conversation. Uh, if the United States is going to rely increasingly on Arab partners uh, to uh, provide for regional security, then it does, I think, uh, behoove uh, the administration and Congress to revisit the processes by which these arms sales are, are reviewed. Excellent. Colonel Perilou, how can the United States and Arab nations cooperate in improving intelligence systems, particularly in light of recent cyber attacks? Yeah, actually, that's, a, that's another ongoing, uh, uh, an ongoing effort and uh, really not something we can comment on in here, but the, the bottom line is that the, uh, uh, the intelligence community within the United States works very closely with the intelligence communities uh, of our partner nations to, uh, to share information. And it's actually paid, played uh, quite a big role in uh, thwarting uh, terrorist attacks both in the U.S. and abroad. I'd Excellent. say that's one of the, one of the successes. Excellent. General Kohler, with recent changes to military structures in Arab nations, well, I'm sorry, uh, how has the U.S. influenced Arab training and military strategies? That's a tough one. Uh, well, I think on the training side, as I said earlier, opening up schools, uh, just the fact that they're operating the equipment has helped transform that. Uh, the strategy discussion, I believe, is... Uh, key to some of the joint-to-joint -joint meetings that are held at the very high levels with the chairman and, and so forth. So I, there's just an ongoing dialogue of how you have that discussion. Excellent. 
Mr. Blanchard, how will Arab-U.S. relationship be impacted by the current Yemen, Syria, and ISIS crisis? Well, uh, it's cut both ways. Uh, it's provided new opportunities uh, for uh, experimenting with um, this partnership approach. Uh, we see Arab nations participating in the coalition operation uh, uh, in Syria uh, against the Islamic State. Uh, we also see an ad hoc coalition uh, approaching the, the, the conflict in Yemen. Um, uh, a lot of what I said today has, has had to do with the trade-offs that come with that. Uh, so, again, I think there are, are, are pros and cons. Um, uh, and this provides the, the test bed for uh, whether or not this partnership approach uh, will work. Excellent. Colonel Paralu, how can the U.S. facilitate the cooperation between Arab and non-Arab states in preventing the flow of militants, recruits, jihadists to the Islamic State, stroke Daesh, stroke Fash? Um, depending on where you're talking uh, about, if you're talking about uh, folks moving in from the region, I think that's that's a sovereign uh, issue, uh, you know, and, and we can uh, probably help with uh, with technology. If you're talking about movements from the U.S. and other Western countries, I mean, again, you're you're really talking about um, identification and tracking of individuals, and that's a much larger uh, and more complicated issue than, uh, than than it is a policy problem. I think the policy issues and the and the um, uh, the laws against it are there. It's simply a matter of the agencies being able to accomplish the mission. And some of those are technological solutions. I think. Absolutely, General Kohler. Democrats are holding up selling bombs for the Saudi air campaign in Yemen. How is this going to affect the U.S.-Saudi security relationship? Why are Saudi's human rights violations in Yemen not debated at the U.N. and in Washington? Well, again, uh, under our law, the Congress has the final say, uh, and they are debating that now. Um, I'm not sure I'll get too deep into that political question, but uh, it, it is always a challenge. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, I still believe that, that transfers and the relationship can overcome a lot of those issues. In this case, uh, I think... Uh, a look at training and, and other capability could get over that hump. Excellent. Mr. Blanchard, how ought one to analyze and assess the implications for American and other international interests of the unprecedentedly large and diverse display of pan-GCC military cooperation in Yemen? Um, well, I, I think... Um, to sort of pivot off that last question, I think there are some in Washington who are... Um, to a certain extent, favorably impressed with what the GCC has uh, put on display in Yemen in terms of a willingness to act, uh, to invest, uh, to use military capability in a regional security environment. Um, uh, looking forward, though, I think uh, those voices uh, may wish to see what the GCC uh, has to offer uh, with regard to uh, more robustly engaging in the fight uh, against Daesh, against the Islamic State in both Syria and Iraq. Um, a lot of the concern I think that region, uh, regional uh, critics have of uh, the U.S. not w wanting to engage uh, more robustly has to do with the fact that the U.S. is asking a lot of uh, what comes next questions. So if the GCC uh, can put together something uh, that helps answer some of those, you know, uh, what comes next for security in areas taken back from Daesh, um, then you may see more opportunity for close uh, U.S. GCC defense engagement uh, going forward. 
Thank you. Colonel Perilou, how likely is it that the United States might withdraw from or downsize its forward-deployed military forces in Qatar and Bahrain and compensate for them by augmenting its presence in Djibouti or elsewhere? It's very unlikely. Um, you know, Djibouti is not a very uh, a hospitable place to put uh, to put the types of four uh, uh, headquarters that we have in both Bahrain and, and in Qatar. I mean, they they don't have the infrastructure to support it. Um, you know, Fifth Fleet headquarters is a is a very robust facility. It's been there for a very long time. I don't see it moving. And then the the Kayak in Qatar, uh, you know, to rebuild that would be uh, uh, well, it's quite simply not necessary. So I don't think it's going to move. Excellent. And I concur forcibly. I would argue that the foremost uh, display of American soft power in the Middle East is the American high school in Bahrain, which is there to facilitate American families to live there. And that's the only place between Italy and Australia where American military with their families can be deployed. General Kohler, how can the U.S. better assure that arms are not flowing into and enabling the Islamic State? Um. We went through a similar uh, issue in the Iraq situation, trying to make sure we had accountability of, of things. It is a very, very difficult uh, problem. The U.S. has uh, programs uh, both on the commercial side and the foreign military sales side that deal with in-use monitoring. Uh, it's easy when it's a big platform. It's incredibly difficult when it's a, a mortar round or a, or a, a rifle. So uh, not an easy thing to do. Um, uh, let's face it, we've made mistakes ourselves, not just our partners. Um, you just need a lot of diligence to work on that. I'd like to take just a second to go back to Certainly. the question you asked, Chris, about uh, some of the release. You know, for years, uh, pundits in Washington and, and some people have said, why don't our Arab friends do more? And when they actually put together a, a group uh, led by the, the kingdom, uh, with three of the other Gulf states to actually go do something to deal with a threat that they perceive to be uh, very near and dear to them, uh, we criticize. So we need to step back a little bit on that one and, and say, you know, this is exactly why we feel that we need to strengthen their capability, continue to strengthen their capability in training, logistics, uh, the strategy you mentioned earlier, uh, so they can do more. And as I said, as we start to pull out of the if we pull out, if we change, as the forces decrease, as there's more stress on our budget, uh, we need them to be ready to step up in the region. Uh, so we ought to be encouraging that type of cooperation and facilitating that and helping them with the gaps instead of just throwing stones. Okay. You're here. Exactly. Exactly. Colonel Perilou, how can the U.S. and Arab nations collaborate to deter the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East? Um, I'm not aware that there is a proliferation of, ma of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. I'm sorry, I said deter. Let's deter. say prevent. Let's say prevent. Uh, well, I, and again, I think that's going on now. I, I don't think there is a, uh, with the exception of one country, I don't see a um, uh, a rush to do such a thing. I think the uh, the sanctions that uh, continue to remain in place on Iran are um, uh, are exactly what we need to do. Um, I don't see any of our partner nations uh, trending in that direction. Um, so I think we're doing exactly what we need to do at this time. Excellent. General Kohler, how, how have airstrikes against militant non-state actors been effective, and how can the U.S. and Arab nations collaborate to make them more accurate? Yeah, I haven't, uh, unlike some of the pundits on TV, I haven't spent a lot of time in the Pentagon asking that question of old friends. 
So that uh, I'm not sure I really have a great answer to that. It never is uh, um, an ultimate solution, even though I'm an Air Force uh, officer at heart. Um, air power can do a lot. Uh, it still takes boots on the ground. Um, we're not there yet. So, I mean, there probably has been some effect. I think we've seen some of that uh, on TV with back and forth, but uh, it it is not going to push to an ultimate solution by air power alone. So we've got a lot of work to do there. Thank you for that. Mr. Blanchard, how can the United States participate in an international coalition that would help settle the political and security situation in Libya? Hmm. Glad you got that one. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, isn't that a good one? Um, well, I, th uh, I think before participation in a military coalition to... Uh, change the situation in Libya uh, uh, moves forward, there ought to be more of a consensus about what uh, the political situation in Libya and framework will look like uh, and, and across the board agreement among members of that coalition in terms of what they're willing to put uh, on the table in order to ensure that uh, the political arrangement in Libya succeeds rather than uh, an approach that focuses on the myriad security uh, threats that, that are present in Libya. Um, one might argue that uh, the reason that those security threats have multiplied is because uh, the military concerns may have trumped political consideration uh, uh, in the initial move uh, into Libya. Excellent. And the final question of the lightning round goes to Colonel Perilou. How large of a role should the U.S. play in assisting the GCC with its activities in Yemen? You know, I think we're uh, uh, we're committed to uh, to helping our partners uh, in that in that campaign. And the bottom line is, we've got uh, you know our biggest the biggest benefit that we can provide is probably in the area of of training, advising, intelligence, those types of things. I mean, we're not going to put boots on the ground in Yemen. Uh, you know, the the coalition has done that. Uh, our probably the biggest thing we can do to help them finish this off is to provide them with the uh, the benefit of our experiences um, with uh, training of their uh, uh, of of their forces uh, and then probably replenishment of uh, of their uh, uh, of their forces. So uh, you know, again, I think it's the things that we normally do there through our security assistance activities probably could be more focused, but but those are the things we should be doing. Okay, excellent. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, I have been pleasure, pleased to come to six of these conventions so far. This is the largest number of questions the panel has asked, in my experience, has answered. Their answers were models of frankness, rigor, and conciseness. Please, let's hear it for your defense panel.